on March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better today. I'm super excited about this follow-up episode. Good. Me too, Lance. And uh, so this is, what, episode seven of uh, of Empty Frames, season three, The Last Dance. We're, we're getting to it, Lance. We're almost there. I know. It really kind of took a, a, a sharp left turn when we were introduced to Charles Pinning and his partner, Pamela Wall. They wrote this report, this in-depth report called Moving Pictures, The Filmmakers Who Robbed the Gardner Museum. And it's causing quite a stir out there in the community. It really is. And we want to remind everyone to be polite um, because things can get a little contentious. Um, so please be polite and respectful. No name calling out there. It doesn't matter who's right. Uh, all that matters is the artwork. So can we get the artwork back? If if Charles and Pamela's theory is right, does that get us closer to the art? And I think that is one thing that we explore in this follow-up conversation with Charles and Pam, because again, that is the main point here, is the recovery. It's it's obviously very interesting in who did it, but we want to get us closer to where the art is or, or recovering any part of the art. Right. And they're the only ones that really uh, had a theory that was outside the box and really deserved a follow-up conversation. We go into a little bit more of the details with them and we uh, answer some questions that we had and uh, some of the community had as well. But yeah, your, your point to uh, just finding a way to return the art, yeah, it's valid. Like This is why we're doing what we're doing. And um, there's a battle along the way, and, and Charles and Pamela both battled to get this uh, report completed and in the right hands. So regardless of whether or not it's accurate, uh, it's it's valid. It, it, it has valid points, and they had really thorough follow-up, and it deserves the attention. Yeah, great point. It is a new theory, and it is compelling. So yeah, this is uh, part two with Charles and Pamela. We go a little bit deeper this time, so I hope you enjoy it. And please follow us on Twitter at empty underscore frames. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. We are being joined now again by Charles Pinning and Pamela Wall. How are you both doing today? We're doing good. Thanks. Yes, doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Again, we had a very successful first conversation with the two of you based on your research into the heist, the Gardner Museum heist, and we received a very good uh, bit of feedback on that, a lot of positive feedback, and we were just curious off the bat, um, how did you feel the last interview went? Yeah, I was pleased with it overall, and I got good feedback from people I know that listened to it and saw the information. Yeah, I mean, anyone that I spoke to uh, who I had alerted to the podcast thought that it was excellent. Everyone enjoyed it very much, thought it was informative, everything went well, they felt it was a, a good show. Were there any, and I'm just curious uh, now, but uh, had you like spoken to some friends about this and being like, hey, you should check this out on, on this podcast and, and not really told them about, uh, you know, the intricacies of the case? I would say I certainly talked to some friends about it. The in, the intricacies, I would say that I uh, simply said, you, you want to listen to this. It's about the Gardner heist and the work that uh, Pam and I have done on it. For the most part, for e years and years since we started working on this, we weren't talking to people about it at all. 
because we were we had been instructed not to for one thing and and there was a certain point in time where people where it just seemed like it was dead and we decided you know to try and get our information out there and at that point you know we started to tell a few people that we knew yeah the advice of our attorney because we thought law enforcement was going to actually do something with our information however in 2016, when um, someone at a very high level, who succeeded somebody else at a high level, did a desultory investigation, basically an ass-covering two-phone-call investigation, never talked to Gibbons, said, uh, told our lawyer, there's nothing there. And so at that point, that's when we started talking to other people because uh, law enforcement was not going to act on our information. And we are, just to recap real quick, we're talking about the document that you sent to us, Moving Pictures, the filmmakers who robbed the Gardner Museum, and it's your theory, a very um, substantial theory about Joe Gibbons. Well, actually, it's a book. It's also the backbone of a book I'm well into about this whole adventure and the theft. Right, gotcha. Okay, so we got the we we have all of your research and Pam's research into this. That is what we're talking about here. We're going to revisit some of these details, but I have a quick question about the law enforcement. You said they didn't follow up on this, or it kind of died for a period of time. What what were the? Can you elaborate on that a little more? What were the circumstances of that? Sure, our attorney was of course very psyched about the information. Totally believed that you know it was Gibbons and brought us to um, well. First of all, as I said last week, he initially in May and June of 2015 brought Gibbons's name to Anthony Amore, the security director of the Gardener, and uh, Jeff Kelly, FBI, and some other higher, very high up people in the case, and gave them the information we had there then about Gibbons, and then several months later. Uh, he brought us to someone very high up in the case. Okay. Do you do you care on uh, elaborating there? Well, you could make some guesses, I suppose, but uh, no, I um, I can't really comment on that. Uh, however, they were at the highest levels. If we if we make some guesses and you don't answer, would that be a yes? Uh, I can't do that, but you can you can make a guess and I can make a comment. Hmm. Uh, high up, high up. Uh, Mayor Menino. Uh, no. Oh man. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a legal eagle, but uh, I don't know. Some some high wig U.S. attorney. Uh, you might think that, but I couldn't possibly comment. Well, that that was those fun fun uh, exercise. Um, okay, continue. <laughs> yeah, basically, we went from high to low, and or from low to high. Yeah. the The initial question was you you mentioned that it sort of died for a period of time, and I didn't know if that was a a uh, case of like multiple reasons or did something, I guess, put the temporary nail in the coffin specifically? It never really died except that it became clear that law enforcement was simply not going to pursue our theory. Why? Well, it didn't certainly didn't fit in with their paradigm, with their theory. It is possible they couldn't unclench from their theory that they'd held on to for at that point uh, 25 years. But I think also, as our attorney told us, Anthony Amore poisoned the water. No way could I ever have envisioned him giving us a reward check. Um, So nobody pursued, Amore wasn't going to pursue our theory, law law enforcement wasn't going to pursue our theory. And so when that all died, the nail in the coffin was a very, very um, balky, well, really pathetic call from one of these law enforcement folks to our attorney saying, you know, it couldn't be Gibbons. Of course, he didn't really do any investigation. He just decided it couldn't be Gibbons. Well, he did call he did call Joe's lawyer on the second bank robbery and asked him about the gardener. Now, first of all, obviously Joe's lawyer, <laughs> if he knew anything, he wasn't going to tell this guy. Yeah, I talked to Joe, I talked to Joe's lawyer, and he told me about the phone call. And it was a just say no call. The, the guy calls and said, uh, he called him and he said, uh, did, you, did Joe Gibbons rob the gardener museum? Did he have anything to do with it? <laughs> and of course, Joe's lawyer, this is Joe's lawyer for the Rhode Island bank robbery. He, uh, he said, um, um, I don't know anything about that. And then this, then this law enforcement person asked for Joe's phone number and address, and the attorney said, "Forget it, figure it out for yourself." So that was the extent. And on the on the basis of that phone call and one other to the AG's office, Rhode Island AG, Rhode Island AG, 
on the Rhode Island bank robbery thing, this person determined Joe Gibbons had nothing to do with the Gardner theft. I mean, my take in a nutshell, they're not going to allow us to be right after, at that point, 25 years of barking up the organized crime tree. How could a writer and an illustrator from Providence, Rhode Island, figure out something they couldn't figure out in 25 years? There's no way they could put a good spin on it. So that just died. And so when we got that word from our attorney that, hey, you know, law enforcement says it can't be Gibbons, then we realized we had to take a different tact. Well, I'm glad you came to us uh, because it is, you know, it is very interesting. Quickly, I would like to talk about some reactions to um, part one. Uh, there was something that Lance uh, mentioned in the outro to uh, to part one of our uh, conversations um, with you. And, uh, and Lance was wondering why Abbott would give the same description as the other guard, Randy. Yeah, Abbott, there were two guards on the night of the theft. There was Abbott, and then there was a guy who was called in at the last moment because somebody called in sick. That other guard, Randy Hestand, you know, he didn't know nothing about nothing. Uh, Abbott buzzed them in. And so since Hestand, the second guard, also got a good look at the two thieves or more, or certainly two of them, Abbott's description to the police could not vary that much from Hestand's. Otherwise, Abbott would have looked uh, pretty suspicious. So he had to keep his description within the ballpark of the second guards who had nothing to do with the theft. So by that account, Randy had, had nothing to do with it, and and he was giving the, the honest description, so Abbott had to go along with that. Why weren't the thieves concerned that their description would be given in the first place? Was it something that just kind of got away from them? I think there was a lot of uh, serendipity and unknown in this theft. They didn't know. They didn't know. And so pretty much the, they, they lucked out. The FBI booted it from, from day one because they locked on to organized crime uh, characters because that's what they know. And so they immediately went searching for organized crime. So there's been a lot of luck involved for Gibbons and Ausler because they just weren't looking for artists. They were looking for organized crime characters. And so, you know, Abbott gives his description that might vary a little bit, you know, to try to throw them off a little bit, but it couldn't vary too much from Hestan's. And so organized, uh, rather, FBI, who took over the case right away, started looking at organized crime people that might have fit the description, totally missing, totally missing a convicted museum thief who lived three miles away in Jamaica Plain, who was a dead ringer for one of the thieves, <laughs> i.e. Joe Gibbons. Yeah, I, I guess it wouldn't matter anyway, as far as uh, different theories are concerned, because whomever was in there that night wasn't concerned with their description being given. And they might have been, but to a certain degree, they lucked out. And of course, if they were snagged right away, Gibbons would just pull the same thing he did out in Oakland in 77 and say, hey, you know, it's meta art. art we just created a performance. It was meta art, art about art. You know, here's your, here's your stuff back. Sorry. <laughs> you know, but it didn't, it didn't go that way. They, Gibbons and Alzer wasn't were on their radar. It wasn't on the radar of the Boston Globe. Or, they weren't on anybody's radar. And all the authorities had to do, be they media or law enforcement, was see what uh, convicted museum thieves might be in the area, and, they, and Gibbons would have popped up to sweet. But they didn't do that, did they? So there's been a certain amount of luck, you know, for Joe and Tony uh, in this, in, in getting away with this. And uh, you mentioned um, that uh, that Spalding Gray interview that, that Joe Gibbons had. Um, and part of that is in Joe Gibbons' movie, Confessions of a Sociopath, which uh, I find um, incredibly watchable, by the way. I really like it. It, it won prizes. It's, you know, it's, it's, as transgressive art, it's, it's amusing on a lot of levels. And it, it certainly became holy grail for us. Yeah, I, I can see why there's, you know, so many images in there, uh, so many locations he kind of just took his camera to and filmed him like, like selfies, like he was holding a, a a phone like today, like he did at that bank robbery um, where he filmed uh, that robbery. But um, so in the Spalding Gray interview, he talks about art about art. Can you tell us a little bit about this? The Art Liberation Front thing that he talks about is kind of silly in its own, but there's a lot of truth embedded in it. Joe is the mastermind behind all of this, and I want to ask you, uh, what exactly is the Art Liberation Front? 
Well, the Art Liberation Front is a group that we formed after the fact, after the crime, and basically we're uh, creating meta-art, which is art about art. The art about art, as he says in the interview, we were making meta-art, which is art about art. So, you know, in the case of stealing a painting, right, you're doing a performance, so the art is the painting, and you're making art a performance about stealing the art. So you're making meta-art. It is significant that Patient has been characterized in his recent workup conference as oppositional. He has sought out a series of authority figures, teachers, law officers, art curators, etc., or limit-setters to rebel against. He rebels against authority figures or limit-setters, including, you know, the police and art curators. All of this, this little segment out of Sociopath, the interview with Spalding Gray, uh, which has the audience giggling and all because Joe's such a charmer, was really just jam-packed with motive information. Now, you, you mentioned during that Spalding Gray interview, uh, the audience was giggling. And for those who haven't seen it, um, you, we can link to that. But what, were the, what was he saying? What was, how was he being so charming? He was very matter-of-factly talking about the Oakland robbery. <laughs> I thought they were. I thought there was an alarm attached to them. They do right. that at some places. I think they started doing that after this this incident happened. Um, Which what, Stephen Kahn was it? It was scissors. Uh, scissors with lemon. It was painted in 1957, and I think it was appraised for at that time about thirteen thousand. It was a, like a jacket, a little bigger than this, stuck out to here. But I had a woman uh, who was with me. She put her arm around me, and I had some some papers, and we just walked out. There were you know guards sent. Well, they weren't in that. <clears throat> particular section, just walked out of the museum and uh, just drove away. And they just walked out, got in the car and drove away and the audience thought that that was hilarious. Did they film that one? Is there footage of that in uh, Confessions of a Sociopath or does he um, just recreate that later? I think he mostly recreated it later. Yes, it seems like a recreation. There is footage of him in Sociopath in a gallery or a museum with a uh, friend of his, but I'm not sure that was the Oakland Museum. But, you know, Joe spends his whole life filming his life and then cutting and editing it and putting it together. He's a pretty busy, creative guy. Yeah, and I, I just want to uh, note here that that Spalding Gray interview uh, was from 1985, so that was still five years before the Gardner heist. Right. The Oakland theft was 77, the interview was 85, and the Gardner was, um, you know, uh, in 1990, five years after the interview. However, you see that he's de his theory is solidifying. His feelings about art, his feeling about crime is all solidifying so that by the time the Gardner rolled around five years after the Spalding Gray interview, he was well-primed. And it was all pretty straight in his head, you know, his feelings about museum art. We were going through the uh, your your document that you had sent us and some of uh, like Ausler's personal collection. Um, so he's so there he's a fan of art and he's got a personal collection. How is what he owned similar or different from what was stolen? Well, he's a big collector and has been for many, many years. Collectors of, of ephemera, of just stuff, junk, whatever objects. And so he's long collect had an interest in winged creatures, be they eagles, angels, walking sticks, but creatures with wings displayed like the finial. After the theft, these guys started dropping clues all over the place. Obviously, you know, not with uh, saying we robbed the gardener, but you know, Tony started posting lots of images of creatures and eagles with their wings displayed on his Instagram page. You know, Joe created so uh, Confessions of a Sociopath. Uh, Tony has done much work and continues to do so with AI mapping for, surve for surveillance purposes of the human face. And so surveillance and um, the collection of winged creatures, in, in Tony's regard, has been ongoing uh, certainly since 1990. And then Joe, of course, with day one at the doppelganger clinic where he recreates the stealing of uh, the coup uh, by taking a tabernacle that has in it, what, the chalice, which is a drinking vessel like the coup. So Joe recreates that in day one at the doppelganger clinic, which uh, can be posted, but also is, I believe, still available on YouTube. And so the hints have been dropped. They're like taggers. They're like graffiti artists. They, they want they want to leave their mark. They want to be known, but they don't want to be caught. So 
pretty much up until 2017 when uh, I confronted Joe personally face to face, they were, they pretty much uh, just were posting and filming away and leaving all these clues. But that uh, came to a, a screeching halt pretty much after I talked to Joe in 2017. Okay, well, uh, can we hear a little bit more about that? And and uh, I guess, have you spoken to him recently? Uh, we, we did see him uh, being kind of active on Twitter, um, but uh, but we don't know if, uh, if you've spoken to him. We have not spoken to him. Well, when he was up for uh, coming up to Providence for his hearings for his bank robbery throughout until December of 2017, uh, Pam and I talked to him on the phone a couple of times. He called us, contacted us, wanted to know what we knew because he was still, he hadn't been sentenced yet. And so I'm surmising that he was trying to figure out how much we knew and, you know, did we have him or not? But then when he got, didn't get prison time for the Rhode Island bank robbery, that ended that. However, last year I talked to him on the phone. He called me out of the blue one or two times and again, it was a whole um, rambling conversation about essentially trying to find out why I thought he had he had been involved in the theft, and of course his denials, you know, that he had been, but this this insistence about you know trying to figure out why I thought you know he was involved and what information I had. So about a year ago, I talked to Joe for the last time. And then you know, about four months ago, I talked to Tony for over an hour. And uh, was he satisfied? Were, were they satisfied when you told them why you thought uh, it could be them? Satisfied? We didn't give them a lot of information about what we knew. Uh, Tony, though, this year, I unloaded pretty much a bunch, not all, everything, but a lot to Tony. And basically satisfied? I don't think they were satisfied at all. Uh, Tony wouldn't get back to me. I tried to contact him a few times after I unloaded a bunch of information, and that was it. He was done. Uh, he could see, and so could Joe at that point, that there was no good for them to be in touch with me anymore because anything they said would only potentially compromise them. So uh, that was the end of that. But Tony and I spoke for over an hour, uh, I think back in March, and he wa- same thing. He wanted to know what I knew. And I mean, here's a guy that I didn't know, I'd never met before. You know, he has a family, a wife, a child. Why would he want to talk to me for over an hour? You know, (laughs) if somebody called me up like that and said I was involved in a theft, I might say, well, I'll tell you what, um, sorry, but you're wrong. Interesting idea, but bye, got to go. Five minutes, maybe. And I I also told him that I was going to publish uh, information implicating he and Gibbons in the Gardner theft. So he knew precisely what I was going to be doing. So he never just, he never said, no, I didn't do it or anything. Yeah, he did say, yes, he said, well, this is all very interesting, but Joe and I were not involved. I mean, what's he going to say? We were, you're right. Oh God, Charles, you're a genius. You figured it out. No, he just said, uh, well, it's interesting, but it, what can I tell you? It wasn't us. However, uh, when I told him that I was going to be publishing information implicating them, there was no pushback. And there's not going to be any pushback. Why? I'm right. Now, you mentioned uh, Tony Ausler. There's another Tony involved in this. I don't think we got into him too deeply on the last conversation. There's Tony Conrad. He's also an artist. What was his role in this? He was a mentor. Yeah, he was a mentor. He's about, he, he, about, he died a couple of years ago, around 75. I mean, Joe is 67 now. Tony's about 65. Um, but uh, Conrad taught Joe at Antioch College in the early 70s. And they, uh, Conrad and Gibbons and um, Alza remained friends until uh, very close friends and colleagues and working colleagues until uh, Conrad's death a couple years ago. Uh, Conrad went on to become a longtime film video professor at uh, SUNY State University of New York at Buffalo. They, they collaborated on many, many uh, projects together. And in fact, Abbott, when really pressed hard uh, by, the, by law enforcement, about what the thieves looked like years later, kind of threw up his hands at one point and said in exasperation, I don't know, one of them looked like Colonel Clink in uh, Hogan's Heroes. And of course, um, at that time, back in 1990, Tony Conrad very much resembled uh, Colonel Clink. You know, you're right. You have the picture side by side with uh, Tony Conrad and Colonel Clink, and there is a resemblance. And, and even if you just do a Google search of uh, Tony Conrad, the the, <laughs> the first picture in images 
uh, he does look very close to Colonel Clink. Yeah, yes. And, and Conrad had very much, very much an anti-establishment, anti-established art, anti-museum uh, point of view that he constantly was pushing through all of his artwork. I mean, he was a guy who I think even Tony Alzer said at one point in an interview I saw, he said, yeah, Tony Conrad does have a big problem with authority. Was Conrad involved in the theft? I don't know. He would be my choice for a third person. Do you think that there's any, uh, and I kind of already know the answer to this, do you think there's any relevance with the uh, Tony Conrad exhibition where he's actually showing, he's, he's showcasing like paintings of empty frames? I think that was in, in uh, the University of Buffalo. Could be, could be. Although I think he called those things the yellow paintings. And he claimed that what he was doing was putting paint on canvas or whatever the material was he painted on and watching it yellow over the years. And he was calling that a movie. Um, was it uh, empty frames? It could also be read that way. It's really important, I think, to remember that these guys are real intellectuals. I mean, Conrad went to Harvard. Not that that necessarily makes somebody a genius, but he went to Harvard, you know, uh, back, I think he graduated in maybe 1960. Um, these are highly educated guys with a sense of play and irony. And they're also incredibly knowledgeable about art and art history. So all of this, you know, all of the residents and, and, and the way this wiggles is incredibly amusing to them. An interesting side note, Tony Conrad's father developed uh, something called Razzle Dazzle for ca camouflage for naval ships during World War II, uh, where you, they'd paint this abstract design on the side of the ship so enemy ships wouldn't appear as a ship from a distance. Um, the whole deception thing. It's very interesting how these guys you know, it's sort of in the DNA. I don't know. But um, early on, Tony Conrad certainly had more than a passing acquaintance with, oh, I would say, deception and subterfuge and all those fun things that are rightfully a part of art. And um, part of that Spalding Gray interview, Joe was talking about how he would steal books and sell them. Could you talk to us a little bit about that process that Joe did? Yeah, Joe was a big art. He actually robbed the Brown Bookstore in Rhode Island at one point. He was stealing books, particularly art books, because the art books tend to be expensive. He'd, he'd steal them from a bookstore and then resell them to another bookstore, claiming that they were his reviewer copies. You know, he talks about this openly in his movie, Confessions of a Sociopath. And there's a lot of footage of him actually stealing books in various uh, stores, too. I had this, I stumbled on this. Uh this ploy with a friend of mine, and we would pose as book reviewers. And, well, first, of course, first we'd have to uh, procure books. Right. And uh, then we just pose as book buyers. Initially, he started shoplifting art books to support his habit. I wouldn't go to a bookstore and say, I'm a, re I'm a critic, can you give me a few books? Right. <laughs> <laughs> You'd steal the books from a retail store. Yes. And you take them to the bookstore. Yes. Right. That was a lot of stealing, I mean, in order to get $40 a day, because you're paying rent too, right? Were you eating anything at the We time? weren't paying rent, actually. Now I can pay the phone bill. I can buy some film. Pay for this car. According to a friend of his that I talked to, he would, per, like for instance, hide his camera in a paper bag on a shelf or stuff like that so he could film himself stealing books in bookstores. You know, being an artist and trying to get by is not an easy gig if you know coming up with money. And so he would come up with money this way. But he was also, he'd, as he said to Spalding Gray, he had developed a bit of a heroin habit out in San Francisco. And so he was stealing books and picking up money that way and reselling them, claiming they belonged to him and that he'd been, you know, they had been reviewer copies. Do you know any more background on how that interview with Spalding Gray came together that, that ended up in uh, Confessions of a Sociopath? Because, yeah, you, you pointed out that there's some laughter and there's definitely a crowd there. They're on a, like a little uh, stage. Like, what, what is the setup there? Well, you know, Spalding Gray at a certain point back in the 
70s and 80s, but certainly in the 70s when I lived in New York City, he worked out of a space called the Performance Garage uh, with a woman named Elizabeth LeCompte. And there was another joint down there, uh, downtown Manhattan, called The Kitchen. And so Spalding Gray was cutting his teeth as a monologist and an interviewer. And now, an interesting side note, Spalding Gray is also from Rhode Island. He's from Barrington, Rhode Island. And Joe was uh, grew up across the bay in Rhode Island in Warwick. Pam grew up in Providence. I grew up in Newport. This is a Rhode Island strong story, baby. Joe, Joe and uh, Spalding Gray probably, you know, they could have met. In Rhode Island, but certainly they would have hooked up later uh, in the in the you know eight, early eighties in downtown Manhattan because Tony Conrad, Tony Ausler, Joe Spalding Gray, they all inhabited the same artistic space, if you will, in Manhattan during the late seventies and early mid eighties. So, for for Spalding Gray to interview uh, Joe Gibbons would have been a natural. Joe being the colorful, curious character. Uh, and Joe loves to talk, of course. Um, and so uh, he would have been a natural for Spalding Gray to interview. You know, it sounded to me like it was a school stage that maybe maybe Gray was teaching at a school in Manhattan or at the kitchen or the performance garage. The kitchen is also another small performing space uh, in lower Manhattan. Now, we're talking about a group of guys who are all artists and all living the artist's uh, lifestyle and all very intelligent and very um, daring. And we, we had some listeners reach out, one listener in particular, Susan. Shout out, Susan. Loyal listener to the show. She started off by saying um, because they're artists, they're seeing art as part of everything, and it symbolizes something. Like everything symbolizes something. And they would then uh, turn their art into some sort of message. And I know you touched on it earlier in this interview and a little bit in the previous uh, interview that we did. But is there something that um, you can point more listeners towards to to look at, like um, maybe uh, some some artwork by Joe Gibbons or maybe uh, some something else as far as clues that they're leaving along the way? Well, I know that uh, Alzer's 2010 sculptural projection piece, which is called uh, Via Regia, uh, which is Italian for the King's Road. Um, that's a, a lot of clues there. A lot of, um, we have, you know, voiceover that says, we have your hidden objects, ha ha ha. And there's a skull rotating in a, in a gilded frame, which would kind of signify uh, a dead artist, you know, the skull. So uh, Alzheimer's Via Regia, Certainly, Ausler's collection uh, of objects, and all you have to do is Google Tony Ausler. The New York Times did a number of articles on him and his collection uh, dating back to the early 2000s. I mean, you know, he's kind of a New York darling when it comes to his work. So honestly, now that people have the two names, Joe Gibbons and Tony Ausler, they can start Googling them and they'll probably come up with a lot of the stuff that we came up with five years ago. Uh, when we when we came upon Joe, do you think that there's any significance in the number of pieces of art that were stolen? Thirteen? No. Yeah, I encourage everybody to look and what they will find. However, especially those you know who've been studying the Gardner case or have an avid interest, is they will dig up a lot of the stuff that Pam and I dug up over the course of the last five years. It's out there, unless of course Gibbons and Alz would try to furiously scrub it off. But a lot of it's going to be there. And, and they will see what we found. And I encourage people to do so because it's really, um, it's really a fun Easter egg hunt uh, because all of a sudden when you have the right people, the stuff just starts pouring in. Speaking of Easter eggs, uh, it reminded me of something else that this listener, Susan, had written. She said, well, just fielding your opinion on this particular theory, what do you think about the paintings still being in the museum but behind something? So, like someplace that they, you know, would obviously not be there. They might actually be there in, in like a crawl space or behind another painting or something. No, we, we have definitely examined that theory as a possibility over the years. That, that's a movie trope. And there, there, there could be something to that because a close female friend of theirs had a residency at the Gardner in 1994. Okay. And was invited to do so by Ann Hawley. 
and the, the then director of the Gardener. And this very close friend, she's very, she's a colleague and a friend, longtime friend of both Alzers and Gibbons. She had a residency in 1994. Now remember, that's the same year that the museum re, uh, received that letter that Anne Hawley, uh, you know, uh, uh, described as being uh, legit, authentic, because the person I said the guards were, you know, they were wearing guard, the thieves were wearing guard uniforms and not Boston police. Now, that woman who I've spoken to had the run of the museum in the months and weeks that she was there, the run of it, day and night. She lived there. She lived there in the carriage house that has since been knocked down, was knocked down to make room for the glassy Renzo piano edition off the back. But this woman could have, because you figure after the theft, of course, they swept the museum thinking that very thing was the stuff stashed somewhere in the museum. But by 1994, um, as Pam once pointed out to me, the museum had already been swept to see if the art was there. So by the time this woman got there, sure, she could have brought the art back in and stashed it someplace. So it's possible it's there. I don't personally think so, but it's possible. I mean, could you imagine that? Could you imagine if if it was there? It's the kind of thing they w- would love to do. It'd be amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, it would certainly fit in with their prankster, you know, the hilarity and fun and the prankster quality of it all. But Pam and I came up with some other theories that I think are quite plausible. Probably one of the best ones is, remember in 1990, it was pre 9-11. So you could come and go from museums in any public place with a lot more ease. And, you know, we thought a good place might be putting it in the storage or archives of a museum or an institution in the Boston area, such as the MFA or the Harvard Museums, because stored there, they would be in archival conditions, as the letter writer said in 1994, they're in archival being stored archivally, but also being unindexed, no one would be looking for them. So they could sit in one of the storage places of these institutions for many years until they were stumbled upon. And then when they were stumbled upon, they would be untraceable to whoever put them there. So that's one interesting theory we've come up with about where the art might be, among others. Because in any given museum or institution, it's like a fraction, a tiny fraction of the art that's possessed by that institution is ever on display. Right. What you see when you walk into a museum is about 90% of that institution's collection, about, about, about I mean, rather 10%. That's what you're seeing. 90% is in storage all of the time. And they, in all of these places, have enormous, I mean, you're talking about, you know, Raiders of the Lost Art kind of thing. Big Home Depot-sized storage units uh, outside of Boston and around Boston where they store all of their archived art. Oh, man. You know what? I... I uh I recently moved out of Boston and I wish I would have uh talked to you guys before this because one of my neighbors in the apartment building I lived in worked for a museum in the in the archival department. He he was responsible for overseeing the inventory. That would have been interesting to actually hear a professional in that department uh talk about like how often he goes into certain areas of of the storage. There was an I think it was in the New Yorker, am I right, Charles, a few years ago about this subject, about how what a tiny percentage of of any given institution's art is actually out for display. It was it was actually in the Providence Journal, believe it or not, and they were talking about the Risley Museum and then but it might have been an AP article because it cited, you know, like the Harvard Museum and the MFA in Boston and giving the percentages of how much of their art was actually on display and how much was in storage. And it was shocking. It should, basically 90% of most museums art is in storage. I'm not going to lie. I think I think we figured it out. Oh, we, I must also say that Pam and I, you know, passed all of this information, including where we thought it might be, on you know through our you know through our attorney to law enforcement. So they got all of this, and you know they got all of our information, everything that we're telling you guys. They got and did not act on. There's I'm putting the call out there to the listeners. If you know anyone who is in an archival department in a museum. If you work for the MFA, if you work for one of the Boston museums, just take a stroll down there. Just take a stroll down. Take a peek around. Good idea. Look in the flat files because the Rembrandt, the big Rembrandt and the big, the two big Rembrandts, which measure about four by five, rolling them up isn't really an option. But, you know, 
there are big posters and paintings and drawings that are in big flat files. Now, if you just sort of insinuated a couple paintings in between that aren't catalogs, so nobody's looking for those, they could sit there for a long time before somebody lifts up one thing and sees something else. But they could also be in Buenos Aires, too, Argentina. I mean, we'll go. We'll go there to, to look. if. Uh... And, and I say that not jokingly because one of their friends who edited one of their movies actually uh, owns property uh, in Buenos Aires. I mean, if we have to, we will go. Uh, in that letter in 1994, the letter writer said the art is being held in a non-common law country. And, and Argentina is, in fact, a non-common law country. Oh, is that letter public, by the way? Is it public? It, yeah, has it, has that been released? I know we talked about that in that last um, interview. Yeah, yeah, that letter. From, yeah, I believe Steve Kirkshen used it or portions of it in his book, Master Thieves. Okay, okay. I just wanted to take a closer look at that because, uh, because of the holdback element that uh, we were talking about in that first episode. Yeah, well, law enforcement holds back all the time because it allows them to vet you know, good information from bad. So if they know it was guards who people dressed in guard uniforms, if somebody comes and says, oh, yeah, I blah, 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 Boston police, they know right away it's not good information. That's why Ann Hawley knew that that 1994 letter was legit because the person knew they were dressed as guards and she knows that. And of course, the FBI knows that too. So it was a legit piece of, it was a legit communication. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, I, I'm curious. I, I got to see if that if that letter has been completely published, though, because if it has, then why would the Globe and all the other books have used um, police uniform? I can't answer that question, but I believe Steve uh, put that letter or at least the salient parts of it in his uh, book, Master Thieves. Right. OK. Now, uh, did you talk to Joe Gibbons about his alibi when you spoke with him? His alibi, he said he was, he, first of all, he said he, lost, he was in France, but that he had lost his passport, so he couldn't show me his passport. And then he sent a very, he uh, texted a, a doctored clip of, from one of his old movies of him saying, what day is it? What time is it? Uh, you know, so to, and then time stamped as though to prove that he was in France at the time. I sent that out to a friend of mine who's head of editing at the American Film Institute, and he explained to me, this has been doctored. Uh, because, you know, uh, Super 8 or video film shot back then would have stuttered in a certain way. And this has been overlaid with this. Info. So I had a professional look at it and debunk it. But Gibbons tried to say that he was in France at the time of the theft. Um, and he used this really shabby, you know, very amateurish little doctored clip to try to prove it. The other alibi, I don't know. When he, we were, when I was talking to him, he just, you know, he said he would confabulate. And that was the confabulated story we talked about last week, where he basically had Abbott play his role in the retelling, and then he plays the Abbott role. And so, um, saying, no, no, don't, you don't do it like that. He had Abbott breaking the frames. And then him, Joe, saying, no, that's not how you do it. You don't take things out like that. So, you know, he, he did a transposition. About that video, again, that, that alibi video. So your, your friend, uh, head of editing, he said that it was not on film? Or I'm sorry, what, what did he say? But basically he said, this was shot, if this was shot in 1990, certain, whatever the capability of, the film would have performed in one way and the overlay, the voice would have performed in another. And so he could tell that the Joe's voice and then this timestamp had been later added with newer technology to the old footage. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking at his quote now. Yeah. He's saying VHS or eight millimeter would not have stuttered the way this video does. And his guess is that Gibbons filmed that clip with his phone and added the date and time later, which, you know, if he didn't do that later, that'd be quite uh, coincidental to ha actually have um, a video, like a short 15 second video of yourself from the day that the garden was robbed. How random. Well, not only that, it's so goofy. And you would be saying, what day is it? What time is it? I mean, the whole thing was just so bogus. You know, you have to laugh. But hey, you can't blame a guy for trying, right? 
It's interesting. I mean, it's not bad. I will say, like it, like even you know the the element of it that makes it seem like it could be real. It to me, I'm not I'm not an, edit, an editing expert, but it looks pretty good. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're not an edi- editing expert, and that's why I sent it out to my friend Mike Jablo, who's head of editing at the American Film Institute. You know, somebody who actually is an expert in this. Yeah, actually, I, I am a bit of an editing expert. Uh, I have been doing uh, a lot a lot of <laughs> editing for years. Oh, okay. Maybe we can get you a job out at the American Film Institute. No, thanks. I'm a, I'm actually okay with what I do. Thank you. I have a quick question about the art liberation front. Is that still in existence? Oh, that was just silly to begin with. I mean, Joe Gibbons is a prankster and a gamester. He, he, he and his pals were just having a good time. But it, it sounds like a fun organization, but it was in no way, you know, a trademarked formal organization. It was just like you and me and Pam and Lance and Tim getting together and say, hey, we're going to form a club. We're going to call ourselves the Hidden Bottle Club. And we're going to have this little clubhouse over here. And we're going to do these things and we're going to go out and collect bottles. And it's going to be really great. And because we think the bottles are just like came from Mars. And so, you know, it's like that. It's just silly bunch of young guys having fun. Gotcha. So, I mean, part of them having fun might have been going into the Gardner Museum and and making a movie about a heist. Have you ever maybe daydreamed a little bit about what the plot of that movie was? Yeah, it was a it was a heist film. In other words, probably if you ever look at any of Joe and Tony's films, like Toxic Detox, where they're injecting poison into candy to give to hollow you know Halloweeners, trick or treaters. I mean, it all has a fourteen year old boy juvenile bizarreness about it. And so I would imagine it would be like this almost Keystone Cop, goofy, a uh, very dr- melodramatic thing where they break into a museum, they come into the museum as cops and they steal the Manet. And so the Manet, which Rick Abbott took during his round before he buzzed them in, that was going to be the, the stolen piece of art for their little fun and games movie running around in the gardener. And, and the security guard uniforms were, you know, part of their costumes for the movie. And so, and then when they shot their fun movie, who knows, they're going to run around the museum. What better than to have footage of running crazily around, you know, the beautiful courtyard and galleries of the Gardner Museum. I mean, it would just be so much fun and nutty. And then you make this movie. And, you know, Rick had already given his two weeks notice. So the museum really wouldn't have been able to do anything to him. And it just would have been a big lark and lots of fun. And then after the movie was shot, Rick on another round would simply put the Manet, the Chez Tortoni, back on the wall and nobody would be the wiser. And that's why it was found at the guard station, because that's the piece that Rick brought back, right? be small enough to hide from Hestan, and that's the piece he brought back when he buzzed them in, so it was there. So on the way out, the the little man A was sitting there, so they popped that out of its frame and took it and left the frame right there on the you know the, the director's chair. Are the cops coming to get you now? No, they're going by to try to stop the wind. I don't know, this is Providence. It's a very, very rough, very, very rough neighborhood. It's also the hometown of the birthplace of Anthony Amore. And I must say, good old Anthony really, uh, he was hired in 2005. We're now 15 years later. Uh, He's still employed by the museum. He was hired and tasked for recovering the art. And uh, he hasn't given them anything in 15 years. And I mean, Zippo, uh, Jeff Kelly, the FBI guy in Boston has been on the case since 2002. That's 18 years, and he's given them nothing. It's astonishing that the museum still employs Anthony Amore. Uh, and in the meantime, he's made a cottage industry and is about to come out with, I think, his fourth book about being an art theft expert, which is you know, such a laugher. Uh, I urge your listeners to contact the FBI and um, – Ask them why they haven't investigated Joe Gibbons and pursued, you know, this information that makes the most sense. And I would also urge them to contact the board of trustees of the Gardner Museum and find out why they still employ Anthony Amore and why they are have been negligent uh, in their fiduciary uh, responsibilities to the museum by turning everything over to a person, Anthony Amore, who has provided them with zero results. They need to take responsibility for the theft of their art because Anthony Murray has done nothing except actually be a fly in the ointment and block us. Well, is there anything that you can um, say as a message to uh, to Gibbons and to Ausler on this on this program uh, that would 
maybe give them some some confidence if they did do this to to come forward with something i mean because if they're sitting on all this uh art and and you know risking spending maybe the last days of their or the last years of their life in jail what's the incentive for them to come forward well i would say to them you know what to do i can't advise them as to what to do they know what their options are that's all i can say I'm sure that Gibbons is three, four steps ahead of us. He knows his options. They're going to just have to mull it over and decide what to do or not do. You know, they've been sitting tight for a long time. If if the FBI continues on on its do-nothing ways, well, they'll probably be okay. If Anthony has Amore, Anthony Amore told a, a friend of mine who was a, a president of an art university at the time, he said, who called him, he said, there's zero possibility that it was Joe Gibbons. So... Amore's already staked out his territory. He ain't looking at Gibbons. He ain't going to look at Gibbons. And neither is the FBI unless, as I said, I urge your listeners to contact the museum and say, you know, WTF, as well as the FBI. Because here's the best information. I'll sit down with the FBI or Amore any day of the week and place my information against theirs. I mean, it's pretty obvious to anyone who uh, doesn't have a dog in this fight who did it. And um, but the FBI and Amore remain um, steadfast in in pursuing these hapless old organized crime figures who had nothing to do with it, who wouldn't know mayonnaise from mayonnaise. They've gotten nowhere in 30 years. So do something now. Uh, do uh, do either of you, uh, Charles or Pam, have um, any any thoughts on where the art might be today? You know, the institutions. um Pam, any, you know. No, I mean, there was a period of time where we thought it might be stashed at Joe's parents' house because they have had a big house, a uh, large Victorian house in Warwick. But the house has been sold and changed hands. I, I don't feel like it's there anymore, but at, at, there was a point in time where we thought it might be. Yeah, I mean, maybe Tony Conrad took it to uh, Buffalo, New York. Or, like as Pam just said, Tony Alzer's studio, or um, could be in Buenos Aires, because as I said, one of the editors of their films around that time owned property in Buenos Aires. And back then, I'm going with I'm going with Buenos Aires. Uh, I'm fifty fifty with that, and it's uh, back at the museum or back in a museum in in uh, the archival department. Yeah, well, I certainly hope it's in good condition, and uh, it could be, you know, that art, when you aggregate it, when you look at all the pieces off the frames, which they are, um, they don't actually take up that much space. And so they don't actually require a lot of space to be neatly hidden. that you uh, walked off with that painting on Friday? Uh, no, I'm not sorry at all. I think uh, there were a lot of uh, good ramifications. For instance, uh, they beefed up the security staff, I heard, which gave more jobs to the Oakland community. Uh, okay, well, there you have it, the Art Liberation Front. What do you think of all that, Dave? 